When you're cleaning up a mess around your home and don't have the time or inclination to get rid of it properly, you might be tempted to literally sweep it under the rug. And while that would make you a bad housekeeper, it probably would do no deeper damage. But when we're talking about high-level radioactive waste from nuclear reactors around the country and the fact that there's no safe place to store it for the next mm, 10,000-plus years, but there is this place called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP site, an underground repository that's licensed to take low-level radioactive waste, If you're the Department of Energy, you just might be tempted to sweep all that radioactive material under this metaphoric rug and swear that everything will be okay and hope we all go along with it. But then, when you hear a genuine expert on the WIP site tell you, The fact that the Department of Energy has waste that it doesn't have any place to dispose of it, because WIP is the only deep underground disposal site, The fact that DOE doesn't have any other site means that they will continue to say, oh, this, that, and the other thing can go to WIP, but that doesn't mean either that WIP is capable of handling it safely, it wouldn't expose people and transportation and workers at the site, or that it's actually allowed by the law. Well, when you hear a genuine expert warn you that this problem of nuclear waste disposal is far more complex and potentially deadly than anyone had anticipated or explained, you've got a pretty good idea that you and I, and even the folks at DOE, are in that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Don Hancock, Executive Director of the Southwest Information and Research Center, a New Mexico-based nuclear watchdog group that focuses heavily on the goings-on at WIP. This area is the focus of Nuclear Regulatory Commission hearings this week and major national activism. Much of our future radiation safety in this country is in the process of being decided right now. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than will probably ever be invited to the White House for a chat with the President. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., 
The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is set to extend the operating license for the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant for an additional 20 years, despite an ongoing proceeding relating to the plant's degraded concrete, caused by alkali silica reactions which cause tiny cracks in the concrete. The NRC further said that it plans to issue a final no-significant-hazards consideration. There's that word, significant. They like it a lot. And plans to renew the license on or about January 30th. An advisory committee on reactor safeguards actually said the plant would be able to operate, quote, without undue risk to the health and safety of the public, end quote. Define undue and what's the due risk? Local watchdog organization C10 Executive Director Natalie Hild-Treat said for the NRC to grant the license amendment and then approve a license extension out to 2050 before the public hearing that the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board granted on the concrete is just crazy. What's the hurry? Seabrook still has 11 more years on its current operating license. We believe these actions could undermine the safety of the American citizens that NRC is charged with protecting. In California, according to two reports recently published by the Samuel Lawrence Foundation, nuclear waste storage facilities at the decommissioning San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station are quote-unquote fatally flawed and could cost Southern California nearly $13.4 trillion over a 50-year period if a major release of radiation occurs. In the report... Retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Lynn Herring Sr., who previously served as a nuclear weapons safety officer, said, I find that virtually none of the protocols that should be expected for the safe handling of this dangerous material are present. I find that personnel and companies are being hired virtually off the street. No specific qualification standards are present, and for that matter, even required. Training is not specific to the risks of the material involved, and there is no fully qualified and certified team assembled for this highly critical operation. The waste is being stored 100 feet from the Pacific Ocean, and the mean high tide level is only 18 inches below the base of the oceanfront storage facility, which means sea level frequently exceeds that height. Some interesting articles that we will be linking to that are a little too long to go into here The first from Robert Alvarez, senior scholar of the Institute for Policy Studies, five reasons not to invest in nuclear power. An article stating that at least 340,000 Americans died from radioactive fallout between 1951 and 1973, but not from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but by domestic nuclear tests. The figure cited for the number of deaths is more than the combined total who died as a result of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. So much for the purported safety of the Nevada test site. And an article from November that we just found, here's when all of America's new nuclear warhead designs will be active and how much they'll cost. It's a pretty shocking document. Again, links to all three will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 396. Over to Japan, where Futaba, the town next to the Fukushima nuclear power plant, was reopened last December for business. Sort of. Futaba was turned into a ghost town after a huge tsunami swamped the nuclear reactors, triggering a massive radiation leak and evacuation in 2011. 
But authorities, whoever they are, are now planning on reopening the town, despite warnings of worryingly high levels of radiation. Those hoping to travel there will need to apply for permission to enter before they will be allowed past a checkpoint. It is thought the town could be rebuilt and ready for evacuees to move back by 2022, provided it reaches government-set so-called safe levels of contamination by the end of this year. Officials want radiation levels to be below one millisievert for people to live there again. Those levels were undoubtedly set in relation to the body of an adult man and do not take into consideration the additional risks to the bodies of women, children, most particularly little girls who are 10 times more susceptible to radiation than an adult man, and of course fetuses. And while Japan may now be exporting rice to China, Chinese residents have expressed concerns over the safety of that rice, especially produced near the Fukushima disaster area. On January 8th of this year, the Chinese government lifted the ban on imports of rice produced in Niigata Prefecture. In a test run, Niigata rice will have a trial sale of only 500 bags, totaling two tons, to Shanghai. However, Chinese residents don't seem to have much desire to buy the rice. The price is almost twice that of domestic rice. And while Taobao, an online shopping site which sells rice from northeast China and has a monthly sale of more than 30,000 bags, its monthly sales of rice from Japan has been a mere 95 bags. From Japan to the UK, where big news is that Hitachi has scrapped plans to build a nuclear power station in Wales, becoming the second firm in two months to abandon major nuclear projects. The 16 billion pound Weifla plant on Angsley was meant to be next in a line of new nuclear plants behind Hinkley Point C, but the Japanese conglomerate failed to reach a deal with the UK government. Hitachi will also bail on a second nuclear facility at Oldbury in Gloucestershire. Combined with the collapse of a Toshiba nuclear project in Moorside, it should be becoming evident that business cannot deliver a nuclear future. And also from the UK, Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Ah, that old nuclear bugaboo, human error, factors in once again. In the UK, a nuclear-powered Royal Navy submarine was involved in a near miss with a large passenger ferry with a capacity for 1,300 passengers and 660 cars. The previously unreported incident was just discovered as having happened in the Irish Sea on November 6, 2018. The submarine was apparently operating at periscope depth, which meant it should have been looking around and it's hard to miss a ferry that big. What it was doing in proximity at this moment, nobody knows. But be it underwater, in the air, or on the ground, there's always room for a human nuclear oops. And that's why UK Royal Navy, which didn't bother to report the incident, you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. In France, the European Commission has given the green light to the French government to enable the construction of solar plants at the Fessenheim nuclear power plant. 
The 50-year-old Fessenheim nuke has faced several safety issues over the decades and is scheduled to be decommissioned no later than the end of 2020. In Australia, it has been determined that the cost of rehabilitating a uranium mine, which is surrounded which is surrounded by a World Heritage-listed national park, will be almost $300 million higher than previous estimates, according to uranium producer Energy Resources of Australia. Revised figures show it will now cost $808 million to rehabilitate the mine, but there is no current plan for monitoring this rehabilitation of the site beyond 2026. Good news from our friends at the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. Here in the U.S., on December 21st, Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California became the fifth member of Congress to sign the ICANN Parliamentary Pledge. By signing, Congresswoman Lee joins nearly 1,000 parliamentarians from 30 countries who have pledged to support the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as the Nuclear Ban Treaty in their respective countries. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide here at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry that the industry itself would rather you not know about. We talk about its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future, as well as providing features with people from the front lines of activism around the world. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you appreciate the information you get from the show... Help us out by sending a donation to help us meet our expenses. Now, we make it easy for you to do this. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation or set up a monthly automatic recurring donation of any size. For those of you who want to make a big difference that's easy on the budget, on the website there's also a big green Donate button With just a few clicks, it allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Now, come on. It's the same as you'd spend here in the U.S. on a decent cup of coffee and a tip. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running so we can continue to search out and share information that the nuclear industry really doesn't want you to know. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. The Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP site in New Mexico, is this country's only deep geological repository, an underground storage facility, for radioactive waste, which its designers claim can safely hold the deadly stuff for 10,000 years. Now, it was designed to handle what's called low-level transuranic waste, which consists of clothing, tools, rags, residues, debris, soil, and other items contaminated with small amounts of plutonium and other man-made radioactive elements during nuclear weapons manufacture. WIP was never designed to handle and hold highly radioactive waste, such as the so-called spent fuel rods from nuclear reactors. 
Now, Whip had two accidents in 2014, major accidents, an underground truck fire on February 4th, and then the explosion of a 55-gallon waste container from Los Alamos National Labs only 10 days later on Valentine's Day. That explosion contaminated Whip with radiation and shut it down 9,985 years shy of its 10,000-year use-by date. In the closing days of the last presidential administration, now former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz declared WIP open to receive shipments of waste again and safe. But is it really? In truth, WIP is once again a hotspot and flashpoint for nuclear manipulation, and that's what we're going to explore today. Don Hancock is executive director of the Southwest Information and Research Center, a nuclear watchdog group headquartered in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Don's been a reliable source of information for Nuclear Hot Seat on the problems at WIP since the first accident I mentioned. In today's interview, Don gives us an update on conditions at WIP, along with the intense political wrangling going on right now about changes in regulations that would allow WIP to take waste it's not designed to take. We also go into the battle over the threat of the world's largest radioactive waste dump being situated in New Mexico and or New Mexico adjacent in West Texas. I spoke with Don on Friday, January 18, 2019. Don Hancock, always great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. Always good to be with you. It's been almost exactly two years since outgoing Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz stated that WIP had repaired the damage from the 2014 fire and then the explosion of the 55-gallon drum of transuranic race from Los Alamos National Lab, and that it was back up and running, and he made it sound like it was in full operation. How much of that statement was true, and how much of it was a politician's exaggeration, if not bluster? <laughs> well, uh, there was certainly a lot of exaggeration to it. Uh, WIP has started receiving waste again in April of 2017. So for the last you know, year and nine months, waste has been coming in on a much slower rate than what had previously been the case. And the reason for that is that the facility is still severely contaminated in the underground. And because of the contamination and because of not enough ventilation, in other words, air flow through the mine, the workers have to be in full protective equipment with respirators to protect them from the contamination on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's not enough ventilation going through to be able to allow all the operations that they were using before 2014 when the radiation release occurred. So what that means is they've slowed down pretty dramatically the number of shipments. Most weeks there are five or six or seven shipments as opposed to what they used to consider to be average of 17 or so shipments. So it's definitely not the case that it's operating the way it was before 2014. And in fact, because of the combination of the contamination and the ventilation problem, they actually say the earliest they would 
be back to sort of similar amount of waste and shipments that they did before would be the year 2022. And that's dependent on some upgrades to the facility that may or may not work, and some of which have not been even approved yet. So there still are a lot of issues. It's primarily receiving about half of its shipments or up to two-thirds of its shipments are coming from the Idaho National Laboratory in Idaho. And then there are maybe one or two shipments a week from either Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Los Alamos in New Mexico, or the Argonne National Laboratory near Chicago. What is the impact of that on those places that are trying to offload their waste to WIP? Well, there are two ways of looking at that. All of those places have a lot more waste than what they're shipping to WIP. So on the one hand, they're all big sites that have significant amount of waste. So it affects them in the sense that they're storing more on site than what they had planned to, but in all cases, there are neither regulatory or physical space limitations on them being able to store the waste. In fact, the Department of Energy itself has historically said in its environmental impact statements that it's safer to leave the waste where it is than it is to transport it and put it underground at WIP. In fact, actual experience has shown that to be true which again is not to say that everything is perfect at all these sites because it's clearly not. And in some cases, the sites, Los Alamos is a good example, are continuing to create more waste so that the real impacts are not all that great. The policy and psychological impacts sometimes can be because WIP is supposed to be quote unquote solving a problem. Well, It's not solving the problem, which then, for people who are paying attention, gets back to the question of, number one, should we be creating more waste? And the answer to that would seem to be no. And two is, should there be more care taken of the waste at some of the sites, thinking that it's going to be there longer term? The other part of that, and gets into something that's just recently happened, Just like in leading up to the 2014 accident, DOE and the WIP people were paying a lot of attention to trying to propose and advocate for additional waste and additional missions for WIP. They're doing that same sort of thing now, which to me is a reason that we're likely to have other accidents at WIP because when management takes their attention off of the real mission, which is transport the waste and operate WIP safely and are doing other things, then bad things tend to happen. This sounds like we're heading into a question that I had prepared about the fact that the Trump administration is now promoting a redesignation of high-level radioactive waste as either low-level or mid-level. In other words, changing the label so that they don't have to pay as much to store it. What is the potential impact to WIP if that goes through? Well, that would be major impacts on WIP because it would mean WIP would be handling waste that it's neither designed nor legally allowed to take, and it would mean that there is higher levels of radioactivity than what is the case now, which further endangers workers who, as I mentioned, are already having to work in contaminated and difficult situations, so this would make it worse with more radiation. That would be the impact, and that would be, you know, the problem. 
my organization, Southwest Research and Information Center, and others would strongly oppose doing that as we have in the past. And we would hope that the new New Mexico administration would, as some of the previous ones have, would also join in to blocking such a thing from happening. So the fact that Department of Energy has waste that it doesn't have any place to dispose of it because WIP is the only deep underground disposal site. The fact that DOE doesn't have any other site means that they will continue to say, oh, this, that, and the other thing can go to WIP. But that doesn't mean either that WIP is capable of handling it safely. It wouldn't expose people and transportation and workers at the site or that it's actually allowed by the law. The current literally current situation going on, in addition to this proposal to reclassify waste at Hanford, Idaho, South Carolina, the Spanner River site in South Carolina, and the fourth site, West Valley, New York, that's something that we're and other groups are opposing. At WIP, DOE just went through the process of getting the past administration to change the permit for WIP to increase the capacity of the facility by about 30%. And how was that accomplished? Because that was another little shell game sleight of hand that they're pulling. It was accomplished by DOE applying to change provisions in the WIP permit issued by the state. My organization and many others opposed it, but DOE got the past administration to say, yeah, this would be okay, and so they rushed through a change in the permit, issued the change on December 21st of 2018, 10 days before that administration disappeared, to leave it in the laps of the new governor and the new administration. So yesterday on January 17th, my organization and another organization, Nuclear Watch of New Mexico, jointly appealed that decision to get it overturned in the New Mexico Court of Appeals. So, yes, you are right. They kind of tried to sneak it through, which they couldn't because there was a lot of opposition. So we slowed it down, but we were unable to stop it because DOE and the last administration decided to go ahead with it, even though it's illegal and improper and a change of practice and lots of opposition, et cetera. We're hoping, but we don't know yet for sure, we're hoping that the new New Mexico administration will actually agree with us and they won't defend this bad decision in court or they'll actually overturn it. So we'll see what happens. Some of those things will be happening soon or it'll go on for a while. But yes, that's the kind of thing that we're having to deal with. The current administration, the federal administration, is also proposing a change in a way the quantity of waste is calculated, taking out of the equation any open space within the storage canisters. What's wrong with this picture and how might that impact WIP? DOE says that would increase the amount of waste that could come to WIP by about 30%. So that's the first major impact of that. The second impact, as I say, is ignoring the legal requirements. And we actually think one of the reasons that DOE was proposing this is to then turn around not only to use it to put more waste into WIP, but to turn around and go to Congress and say, look, 
state of New Mexico doesn't care about how waste is measured and therefore how much waste is in. So why don't you just change the provision in the law that limits the type and amount of waste at WIP and get Congress to change the law so that the litigation that we're doing on this measurement and litigation that we would do if we need to against the high-level waste and other things would be much harder for us to win because the law would not be on our side anymore as it is now. So that's the kind of thing that is going on. And the Trump administration will continue to do what it's doing, but we do have a significant change in New Mexico administration. So we are hoping that the new New Mexico administration will actually agree with us and resist these efforts that DOE is doing. As regards the nation's ever-growing stockpile of radioactive nuclear waste, now there's a proposal to place one or two so-called interim waste storage facilities in the Southwest. One proposal is for New Mexico and the other one is in West Texas. What are the issues there and how is your organization involved with it? The site in New Mexico is the Holtec site, which is in southeastern New Mexico, about halfway between the towns of Carlsbad and Hobbs. The site in West Texas is called Waste Control Specialist, which is in Texas, but literally right on the New Mexico line. I can actually stand at that site with one foot in Texas and one foot in New Mexico, literally. So both of these are proposals to bring the nations a lot up to all and even more than currently exists of the commercial spent fuel from nuclear power plants to these sites. We are resisting that mightily. On January 23rd and 24th, um, three judges, what are called administrative law judges from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission will be in Albuquerque for hearings to hear the lawyers for various groups that are objecting to that argue why they should have a legal right to participate in the licensing process and that some total among the four different groups of about 40 objections, what NRC calls contentions, should be included in the licensing process, you know, which are reasons that the license should not be issued. So there's a lot of effort that my organization and a lot of other groups, both local and regional groups, so local groups like the Alliance for Environmental Strategies, which is basically an environmental justice group in southeastern New Mexico in these areas, nuclear issues study group, and then national organizations like the Sierra Club and Public Citizen and a number of regional or local groups, the San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace from California, all of those groups that I just mentioned and some more are objecting and opposing these sites. And as I say, next week, January 23 and 24, there will be major hearings where the lawyers will be talking, et cetera. Before that, on January 22nd, the coalition of groups that I mentioned will be having a press conference in Albuquerque to go over some of their objections and encourage people to actually come to those hearings, even though these are like courtroom proceedings, so individual people can't get up and talk. But to have people from New Mexico who are there 
supporting the opponents and not supporting what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and staff and the whole tech company that's applying for this license are saying uh, will be important. So we will be highlighting in the press conference, we will be highlighting the technical and legal problems with this proposal and also encouraging people to come. And we in New Mexico appreciate the fact that in addition to the New Mexico opposition, there are people from other parts of the country that are coming in for this hearing as well. And so that shows that it's not just a local issue and not just a regional issue, it's a national issue because to bring spent fuel from the power plants all over the country to New Mexico requires going through a lot of communities all across the country, whether they have nuclear power or not, and the transportation itself of this very highly radioactive waste is dangerous. We've also had interviews on this program with Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety, who is the one yes. who researched mm -hmm. the fact that the railways are not built to be able to withstand the kind of weight that would come from transport of nuclear canisters, let alone in their travel canisters on the rail beds. And that's just flat out from the rail industry. So there are a lot of dangers here that are not being paid attention to seriously enough, it seems, by those who are trying to push through these two so-called interim repositories, which may end up being there forever. My question is, given the fact that the NRC seems to exist to do the nuclear industry's biddings, as we heard so clearly on last week's interview with former NRC chair Greg Yatsko, how likely is it that the agency will take the points that are being raised under serious advisement and actually use it to influence their decision-making process as opposed to the there, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it approach? Well, clearly, as you described, that's what NRC always does. So we understand that. So two things, though, to keep in mind, you might say, why are we wasting our time, effort, and money to fight this? Well, one reason is because there are technical problems and there are major legal problems with this that assuming NRC does not take seriously. If NRC takes it seriously, they wouldn't issue the license. Assuming they won't take it seriously, then they are not necessarily the final decision makers. And in fact, the primary legal issue that one of the national organizations beyond nuclear is taking the lead on says that this whole proposal is illegal. And in fact, it's illegal for NRC to even be having this licensing process. And that is the, the law, the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, the federal law says private utilities could have these kind of consolidated storage sites. In fact, some of the nuclear utilities went through a 10-year process with the NRC to get a license for private fuel storage in Utah, but they got a license in 2006. So that was a license that's never been able to be used, but it was and is legal for utilities to say, we will keep title of the waste, we will pay all the transportation costs, we will pay all the storage costs for these kind of facilities. But that's not what Holtec and waste control specialists are saying. Instead, they're saying the taxpayers through the Department of Energy would take title to the waste, would pay for the transportation, would deal with the emergency response, would pay all the costs of storage, and would then take it to some disposal site. Well, that's not what the current law allows. In fact, the current law prohibits 
the Department of Energy from doing those things. And so if NRC isn't going to take that legal flaw seriously, that issue can be taken to court. And I agree with what you said, that the history is NRC will license these things. But two points. One, as I mentioned, they've already licensed a consolidated interim storage site for 40,000 metric tons of spent fuel in Utah. They did that more than 12 years ago. It's never been used and it never will be used. So just the fact that there's a license doesn't mean that this will happen. But number two, there are occasions where because NRC doesn't follow the law, the courts will overrule the NRC. And we think this is another one of those times if NRC doesn't take clearly violating the law seriously, we're hoping that maybe courts will. Now, obviously, again, courts are no sure thing either. But as I say, there is some history of courts overruling the NRC. And we think the legal basis in this case is quite strong and parties are willing to pursue that not only with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but potentially, if necessary, to other courts. So we think there that is possible. And of course, all of this process that we're talking about will show people in New Mexico and other places what you correctly stated is the case, but average citizens don't necessarily know that. Remember, we have no nuclear power plants in New Mexico. So people in New Mexico have not gone through the same kind of Nuclear Regulatory Commission processes that Donna Gilmore and other people at San Onofre have gone through and people at the other power plants around the country have gone through. So while you understand and other people understand what a inadequate regulator the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is, average citizens don't know that. And this will be an opportunity for folks in New Mexico and other places to understand that better, which again undermines the credibility of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In New Mexico wants to use the same containers here that they're using with great difficulty at San Onofre. So oh again, what, what doesn't work in one place won't work in another place. And so the idea of showing how these is the same problem, the same company, the same bad containers in one location being proposed in another location is something that's important to keep raising. Is anyone from San Onofre planning to be at these hearings next week? Not that I know of. And if they were, they wouldn't be able to say anything because, again, these are courtroom kinds of situations. So just Lawyers are the only ones can argue, and lawyers for the people who have filed these petitions for intervention that I mentioned can be there. Um, Molly Johnson from San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace in Northern California is planning to be here. Her organization is part of a coalition of groups who are opposed, and so her group is and can be represented by their lawyer, Terry Lodge, who will be here and who will be arguing before the NRC. And as I say, Molly's going to be here, not because she can speak, but she can support her lawyer and she can participate in the press conference and other things that we'll be doing next week. And Terry Lodge is terrific. We've had him on the show a number of times. He's as good as it gets. Yes, we are very pleased that the organizations have excellent lawyers. Terry Lodge is one. The Sierra Club is represented by Wally Taylor, again, an experienced litigator on nuclear issues. Beyond Nuclear is represented by Diane Curran, who mm. is 
probably the lawyer who's done most litigation against NRC for a long time, including successful litigation. So she will be here as well, arguing the legal issue that I mentioned about this whole thing is not legal. And then the fourth lawyer who will be arguing is Nancy Simmons, who is a lawyer based here in Albuquerque, who is representing the Alliance for Environmental Strategies, the local environmental justice group here, and she will be arguing about environmental justice issues. Nancy, unlike the other three lawyers, doesn't have experience before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but she is a very experienced litigator and has won some pretty exceptional cases here in New Mexico. So we are very pleased and fortunate uh, here in New Mexico that the lawyers who will be arguing before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission next week are highly skilled and very good. Uh, the four lawyers I mentioned will also be participating in our press conference on January 22nd. What kind of a timeline are we looking at to find out what the NRC decides once we go past these two hearings? Do you know approximately by when you will be hearing back so you know when you will be implementing your next set of steps? Yes. This three-judge panel, the Atomic Safety Licensing Board, has said they expect to issue their decision based on the hearings happening this week in March. So six to eight weeks from now, they will decide which, if any of the four groups that we talked about, will be able to participate and which of their objections or contentions will be heard in the licensing process. So they'll make a decision in March and announce it will be a detailed written decision, dozens if not 100 or more pages. That decision can then be appealed to the full Nuclear Regulatory Commission for them to make a decision and potentially, as we've already talked about, depending on what the commissioners themselves decide, can further be taken to court. And we think some of the parties and some of the contentions will have to be admitted because, you know, we've got people that are directly working by these sites, have property by these sites, live along the transportation routes, et cetera, both in New Mexico and other parts of the country. So if they actually exclude all of these groups and all of these issues, many of which are backed up also by expert witness testimony, that will be such a clear error that uh, we would think that would be reversed. So we sort of expect that at least some of the groups and some of the objections will be admitted. If they are, that will then have a licensing process that will go on for an unknown number of times, but probably two or three years at least. I just find it shocking that the groups that are objecting have to fight for a place at the table, a right to have their voices, and get to have it predetermined which of the issues are actually going to be considered as opposed to, look, they're all important. Why don't you pay attention to all of them? You are correct. And of course, as I say, the, all, all of these groups and all of these contentions should be considered based on past performance. We're not optimistic that that's going to happen. But again, unfortunately, that's part of the process that we have to go through because if nobody objects, then this process goes faster. And politically, and again, just like with WIP, what Holtec wants to do is get Congress to change the law. 
So if they're able to get a license or show there's not any opposition, that then increases their lobbying strength to go to Congress and say, hey, change the law, which, of course, our groups in New Mexico, as well as the groups around the country that we've mentioned and others would resist that as well. So part of what's going on is a little bit of theater in the sense of Holtec using the licensing process to change the law use it as part of their lobbying to change the law because they also know this example of private fuel storage where you got a license and you couldn't actually use it. We in New Mexico will, if we're unable to stop the license, will also expect they're going to not be able to use it. And in that regard, it's important to point out the waste control specialist site in Texas that has a lot of the same problems and a lot of the same opposition. All of the transportation Well, Texas is east of New Mexico, and about 90% of the commercial spent fuel is east of New Mexico. All of the fuel would have to come through New Mexico to get to waste control specialists because there's only one railroad line into waste control specialists that goes through Eunice, New Mexico, the town that's closest to the site. And as I say, every single shipment, every single rail shipment to wherever it comes from, east or west, to waste control specialists would have to go through New Mexico. So both of these sites have major impacts on New Mexico, both because of transportation and one is in New Mexico and the other is on the New Mexico border. So New Mexico would be very heavily impacted by both of these sites, which is why a lot of people in New Mexico are strongly opposing both of them. And we all know that radiation is no respecter of the kinds of barriers that are artificially put down there moving one state from another. It doesn't suddenly go, oh, wrong state, can't move in. Dom, you're continuing to do terrific work, as are all of the activists who are working on this. And we will check in with you in six to eight weeks when hopefully we will hear that the majority of the points that you are raising are going to be utilized in considering whether or not a license is to be granted. Until we talk at that point, I want to thank you for once again being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. really appreciate your work. Don Hancock, Executive Director of the Southwest Information and Research Center, a nuclear watchdog group headquartered in Albuquerque, New Mexico. After I recorded that interview, I received further information on the political and legal wrangling taking place over New Mexico's position in the radioactive waste NIMBY battle going on right now. I heard from Kevin Camps, nuclear waste watchdog, or as I like to call him, bulldog, for Beyond Nuclear, who is in New Mexico right now. Kevin wrote, The next few days will be big ones in the fight against the highly radioactive irradiated nuclear fuel, quote, Centralized Interim Storage Facility, or CSIF, targeted at New Mexico by Holtec International and Eddie Lee Energy Alliance. 2.5 times more high-level radioactive waste is targeted at New Mexico than is targeted at Nevada's Yucca Mountain. They're aiming for 173,600 metric tons in New Mexico versus 70,000 metric tons in Yucca. It's the world's biggest radioactive waste dump that you've never heard of. But this also means that the transport impacts from truck, 
train, and or barge shipments through most states, major cities, and the vast majority of U.S. congressional districts will be 2.5 times worse than yucca dumps if the New Mexico CSIF opens. So when it comes to high-level radioactive waste transportation, we all live in New Mexico and Nevada. Kevin will be the featured guest on next week's Nuclear Hot Seat to bring us up to date on the two hearings that are taking place in what some of us are referring to showdown at Not Okay Corral. Activist shout-outs! There is an excellent new documentary that's out, The Nuns, the Priests, and the Bomb. It tells the story of the July 2012 break-in to the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, known as America's Fort Knox of uranium. Y-12 stores enough highly enriched uranium to make some 10,000 nuclear bombs. The break-in, described by the New York Times as the most serious security breach in the history of the U.S. atomic complex, sent shockwaves through the federal government especially when it turned out that the intruders were an 82-year-old Catholic nun and two fellow peace activists, one a senior citizen and one senior citizen adjacent. The trio succeeded in penetrating the heart of America's nuclear stockpile through the sheer power of their moral conviction, a pair of bolt cutters, and a Bible or two. Theirs was a plowshares protest designed to raise public consciousness on the existential threat posed by nuclear weapons. Now, this film profiles the people on the front lines of the movement. Since 1980, activists in lay and religious life have undertaken dramatic plowshares protests, risking long prison terms and even death in an ongoing campaign to move the world away from the nuclear brink. Plowshares is derived from an injunction in the Bible. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Sometimes activism does consist of sitting and watching a movie. You can find this one at nunspriestsbombsthefilm.com, and we will also link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 396. Here's today's final thought. The daughter of a friend is a freshman at UC Santa Cruz studying environmental science. Katie was hiking with friends in nearby Davenport, California, when they stumbled upon an interesting site to investigate, which turned out to be an old cement factory, originally built in 1906 and finally shut down in 2010 by then-owners Semex. In their exploration, neither she nor her companions expected to stumble across radiation signs warning of cesium-137, one of the most dangerous radioactive isotopes to the environment in terms of its long-term effects. This abandoned industrial site used cesium-137 in some capacity in the manufacturing of concrete, not inside the concrete itself. The end product is apparently safe, but it was used in some process that made it. This raises many issues, not the least of which being, WTF are you kids doing prowling around an abandoned industrial site? kids. The Semex facility was shut down in 2010 because hexavalent chromium, otherwise known as chromium-6, the chemical that featured in Aaron Brockovich's first case, was found in water released by the plant. So at minimum, we know the area has suffered industrial contamination. 
But does the town of Davenport know about the cesium? When and for how long was it used? How was it removed when the factory shut down? Has there been any testing for radiation in the area? If so, what have been the results? And where can they be accessed by the public? Cesium has a half-life of 30 years, and it will take a minimum of 10 half-life cycles for it to decay into a whole other series of isotopes that are still radioactive, though not as deadly. And Semex still has 11 other cement manufacturing plants around the country. Do they all use cesium-137? How well is it monitored? Do the workers know about it? Their unions? The communities? That's part of the problem with nuclear radiation and possible contamination. There's no telling where, how often, or how intensely it can show up once an environment has been contaminated, even by so-called safe manufacturing practices. For example, longtime listener Patty Amino of Apollo, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh, grew up across the street from the Numec plant, which processed nuclear fuel, only nobody knew that's what it did. Christian Iverson, author of the internationally awarded book Full Body Burden, growing up in the nuclear shadow of Rocky Flats, as a child lived in Arveda, Colorado, just across the road from the Rocky Flats site. It was always a nuclear weapons production facility, but Christian grew up knowing it was run by Dow and thinking that it made scrubbing bubbles for cleaning toilets. Now, Rocky Flats is both a radioactive Superfund site and a so-called wildlife refuge. And if that's not a contradiction in terms, I don't know what is. And of course, in North St. Louis, kids splashed around in Coldwater Creek, their parents never imagining that it contained World War II nuclear weapons waste, and that in 70 years, it would lead to an enormous cluster of so-called rare cancers in those children who played so innocently in the neighborhood creek. The point being, when it comes to radiation exposure, we do not know what is in our midst or what we are in the midst of. Radioactivity? Can't see it, smell it, feel it, taste it. If you don't have the proper equipment and aren't looking for it, you can't find it. But that doesn't mean it can't find you, because it can and it will. Or if not you, the person next to you. And its impact on life and health can be deadly. So my friend's daughter has uncovered a bit of a mystery. Fortunately, she is an environmental sciences student. So Katie is not without resources. She will be bringing what she's already discovered to the Campus Environmental Club, to see what, if anything, they know about the site and take it from there. I've already recommended that they be in contact with SafeCast, as it would make a grand campus-wide experiment to map background radiation levels in Santa Cruz and adjacent areas, including Davenport, and keep tabs on it for years, if not decades, to come. I'm also guiding her in some detox protocols and proper supplementation to use after this possible radiation, or chromium hex exposure, because neither she nor any of her companions used a shred of protection. Kids. Katie also texted me that when the factory left in 2010, the town of Davenport crashed, but it has been reinventing itself as a tourist destination. Let's hope they're not putting themselves in line for some future numbnuts of the week. 
This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, Eagle Tribune, The Coast News, Albuquerque Journal, Huffington Post, BigThink.com, DefenseNews.com, DailyStar.co.uk, NuclearBan.us, Bologna.org, TechnologyReview.com, ABC.net.au, JapanTimes.co.jp, The Guardian, ITV.com, The Cubicle Drones Who Grind Out Press Releases for World Nuclear News, and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And hey, big shout out to all of you Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. I say it every week, but it's still true. We are downloaded in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And a big welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. If you know of a local community radio station that would like to carry Nuclear Hot Seat, we make it easy. Just shoot us an email, let us know the name of the station, or put the station in touch with us. We'll get it going. If you haven't already... Visit the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page. Click like, follow, post, and share. And you can find our back episodes, all 395 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. When you put in the URL, add slash blog, and you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time, or you can check them out by date. And if you put in NuclearHotSeat.com slash book, you will learn about my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima, and Nuclear Hot Seat. It is available on Amazon. Don't risk missing a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. It's easy to do. When you go to our website, scroll down for the big yellow box and sign up for our weekly email link to the latest show. We won't bug you with lots of email. That'll probably be it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And please, if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevian Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. What you don't know can hurt you. And unfortunately, chances are it probably already has. All righty then, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.